The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Two summers ago, we began preaching through the book of Genesis in a series that we're calling Origins. And in that summer, we covered the first 11 chapters of the book where we saw the origin of creation, we saw the origin of marriage, we saw the origin of the covenants and languages and salvation. We saw the very first shadow of the gospel after seeing the origin of sin and how God promised that he would correct and redeem what Adam and Eve had lost in the fall. He would be bruised by the serpent but he would ultimately crush the serpent's head. And last summer we returned to Genesis and we covered chapters 12 through 22 in which we focused on the majority of Abraham's life. Now those passages afforded us with the incredible examples and illustrations about faith. And more importantly, we saw that we are able to have faith because God himself is faithful. The Lord instituted and initiated everything of value in the life of of Abraham, And we learned that the very phrase, by faith, stands in stark contrast to the idea that we can be right with God by works, or by obedience, or by our efforts. And at the end of last summer, we saw that God had strengthened Abraham's faith so much that when God gave him the command and said, I want you to take your son, your only son, and take him up onto this hill, and I want you to, to make him a burnt offering, that he was willing to do so. And there was where we saw the great picture of the gospel. Of course, God stopped Abraham, but ultimately we know that there was one son who was going to go up that very same hill and who would be sacrificed, not for himself, but for others. And that is the perfect holy son of God. We saw the gospel of Jesus Christ depicted two millennia before it was to be fulfilled. Now this summer, we're going to be jumping right in where we left off, and our focus is going to be this summer on the adult life of Isaac and on the life of Jacob. But in these passages, we're going to find very few origins. Not much is new. Most of the narrative that we're going to cover this summer is going to be revealing the manner in which God carries out and preserves his promises, the way that he loves and keeps covenant with his people. So right now, I would ask that you join me once again as we pray that God would build us up through his word that we are finding right here in Genesis, not just today, but also throughout the summer. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we are so thankful that your word is so thorough and rich and has provided for us so many different examples and so many different ways and avenues to focus on you and to see how you work and who you are. Lord, I thank you that your word today is given to us that we might be changed by it. God, I pray that as we focus on this extensive passage, this long narrative, God, that you would give us the ability to focus and clearly uh, understand the main points. And God, I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you, that they might hear these words and believe. God, for those of us who are redeemed, I ask, Father, that today would be an incredible encounter with your word, that we would, even if we don't remember any specific words from this sermon Lord, we would be changed so that we would never be able to doubt that there is a significant difference in our life because of what your Holy Spirit has done in us. So, God, we pray knowing that only you can do this work. So, Lord, we pray knowing that we are absolutely in need of you this morning. So, please, Father, 
Come and work through these words that we are hearing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, before I begin explaining the main point of the text this morning, I first want to encourage you to examine this narrative through, uh, with two thoughts consistently being in the back of your mind. First of all, this chapter is going to be uh, going to introduce to us several different figures that are important throughout the remainder of what we'll be seeing this summer. There are several new characters in the story arc. So each time a new person is introduced, I want you to take care to take a mental note of their character and take note of their spirituality because much of what they're saying about these characters right here, these true Historical figures right here in their introduction will be important for how their storyline carries out throughout the remainder of the book. Now, secondly, I, want you to, I would like for you to take very special care to look for what you can find in this text about biblical dating or courting or whatever you would like to call whatever that is that leads up to marriage. And there's a lot that we can glean from this text in regards to that topic. We can see that it's important where we're searching for a husband or a wife, which we see when Abraham tells his servant where to go to find Rebecca. To state it simply, if you are dating an unbeliever, you are sinning. And we see that we must pray for God's guidance, like Abraham's servant. Parents, we should be praying for the children that we have for their future spouses and pray for them to be the kind of person that will be able to find a good spouse. Single folks who are here, who are searching for a spouse, pray for that faithfully, trusting that God is going to lead you where you should go. Thirdly, we see that we are to develop this character, just like Rebecca, when she showed and displayed such love and hospitality for a stranger. Are you developing into a godly person in such a way that you will be the kind of person other godly people are searching for? And finally, and most importantly, we can see that we are to draw near to God which is far more significant than finding a spouse. And we are to do that just as we see Isaac doing here at the end of the passage when Rebecca comes into the picture. Now, you might be wondering, if that's the outline that you're showing us, why don't you just preach that? And the answer is very simple. Although I think that all of that information is good and true and practical, and I think it's in there, I don't believe that any of this is the main point of the text. So faithful exegetical preaching is all about finding what is the main point of the text and proclaiming it faithfully. And simply put, this text should not be boiled down to a simple four practical tips for Christian dating kind of sermon. However, the main point of this uh, topic and conversation uh, this Wednesday at my Levittown community group is going to focus on these things. So if you are interested and have not yet been to a community group on Wednesdays at my home, you're welcome to join us and discuss these things. It's helpful for parents as we teach our children. It's helpful for singles as we seek to understand how to do this in a godly way. And it's also helpful for those of us who are already married but are, are often called upon to counsel those who would like to know more about what in the world are we supposed to do in order to find a godly spouse. So I encourage you to join us uh, this Wednesday at my house at 7 p.m. if you want to know more about those things from this text. But what is the main point of Genesis chapter 24? It's a beautiful and interesting story, right? I mean, this is such an incredible, incredible narrative that we've gone through. It's the longest chapter in Genesis, and it's the only real story that we have about Isaac in the prime of his life, and it doesn't even cover much about him at all. It actually focuses more on, on the servant and on Rebecca. This is not just a fluff piece, though, that is placed here to bridge the gap between Abraham and Jacob's generation, these two figures who often are considered to be more interesting. This passage reveals to us something really important about God. 
Namely, that God used a myriad of means to carry out his ultimate purposes and plans. Everything from the ordinary to the extraordinary is being expertly wielded by God's mighty hand so that his covenant will not fail. So this morning, we're going to examine four of the ways that we can see God working in this passage to preserve and to fulfill the covenant that he had made with Abraham. Now, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes. We know that. But today, we're going to focus on four ways that we can actually see God doing that practically in this text. The first way that we see in the text is found in verse 7. But in order to help us develop what's happening there in the context, let me read again the first seven verses. And I'm going to give a little bit of extra emphasis here and there to kind of underscore what's taking place. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord for the God of heaven, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send an angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Now, Abraham is charging his servant with a mission. Go find Isaac a wife. And the criteria is very, very simple. It's not extensive. There's not a checklist. It's very simple. Do not find a Canaanite woman. And secondly, it must be a woman from my kindred. It's worth noting here that Abraham had very, very little contact with his extended family. There was no easy way to transfer information over long distances during this time period. But back in chapter 22, verses 20 through 24, we find these words. Now, after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Hesed, Hatzo, Pildash, Jilaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Remuah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Maaka. Now, here Abraham has heard all about his relatives that are existing that he has never met. It's possible that Abraham had not actually had any new information about his family for the previous 40 years. But now he has learned there are actually living relatives. Your family is thriving in number. And so if Isaac is going to be married, he is not going to marry a Canaanite woman. It will be one from his own household. Because if, if Isaac marries a Canaanite woman, it would stand to reason that the Canaanite might have some claim on Abraham's wealth or the land which God had given to him. So Abraham sent the servant to this large group of people that had never been that he had never met to find a wife who would be willing to return with him. Now, it's important that we see here Abraham never encouraged a forceful capture of a bride. 
She was not to be manipulated. She was not to be coerced in any way. This is not a seven brides for seven brothers kind of situation. Abraham clearly states in verse 8, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So this mission, though, is nearly impossible. I mean, think about it. The servant was tasked with the mission to travel incredibly far back when it was very difficult and dangerous to travel. Don't forget what we learned previously in Genesis about how people were received in the land of Sodom. I mean, that's an extreme example, but it is dangerous for you to travel from one location to another. And he would be required to find a woman who is both suitable and willing to return to marry a man that she has never met and had no proof that he was even real. So when the servant announced his reasonable doubts that any woman would want to return with him, Abraham encouraged him and said, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. Now, once again, we see the faith of Abraham on full display. He knows that God is a covenant-keeping God. He swore to me, Abraham says. He promised me that my offspring, which is Isaac, will inherit this land. So Abraham informs his servant that God would uh, send out an angel before him. Now, here's the first thing that I want you to see about how God works. That God fulfills his purposes. God keeps his covenant. God performs his plans and it is through angelic activity. God works through angels so that, and we will likely never even recognize or notice that he's doing these things. Now, it's very interesting to me that we never see the angelic figure in the story. Abraham promises that this is going to take place, but we actually never see that character show up. The story goes on for another 60 verses after that promise. You heard it read expertly today by Ray, and you never once heard any note of this angel showing up. Yet it seems clear that God was working through these events together with the forces that extend beyond our natural realm. And I believe that God has preserved that statement by Abraham because it is true. God has kept this promise that Abraham made to his servant. There is going to be angelic activity. There is an angel going before you because God has, God has kept that force and preserved it because it is actually accurate. But what are the implications of God working in this way? What are we practically supposed to apply from the fact that God is working behind the scenes with angelic activity? Allow me to offer you four very quick things. First of all, do not declare that an angel will do something or won't do something. Now, although this doesn't seem to be as common now, there was a time in my life where I often heard people saying something very similar to Abraham in this passage. I'll be safe on your mission trip. God's going to send angels to watch over you. Now, they might actually be factually correct. They might be accurate, but they don't know if they're accurate. God might send 100,000 angels. He might send one angel. He might send no angels to go help this individual as they're going on a mission trip. We don't know. But if you look at the text, Abraham knew that this would take place. He knew it to be true for a reason. He is not haphazardly saying and speaking in behalf of God, this angel will go. He is speaking on behalf of God because he was grounding the statement in the unfailing efforts of God who had always promised to bless Abraham and bring about the fulfillment that he had promised of the covenant. So Abraham is not saying this randomly. He is speaking knowing that God had promised to fulfill his covenant. Here's a second application. Don't go searching for angelic activity. 
That's not what we are to learn from this passage. The Bible never tells us to search for angelic actions. In fact, it never even gives us an example of anyone who appropriately sought out angelic activity to see if that's what was going on. In fact, most of what we read about angels in the New Testament is a warning of a sinful overstatement of the place of angels in God's kingdom. It seems as though the false teachers in Colossae, for example, were promoting worship of angels. They were raising them and elevating them to a place too close to Christ. Now, almost the entire first chapter, for example, of the book of Hebrews is making an argument that Christ is better than the angels. And the chapter closes with these really important points from verses 13 and 14. It says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Thereby declaring that the angels are far inferior to Jesus. And then in verse 14, he says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who who are to inherit salvation? Here, he is showing that their purpose, the angels purpose is never to receive any attention. It is instead to serve behind the scenes to serve God for the sake of those who will be saved. That's really important. We are not to focus on them or set our attention on them and to set your attention on angelic activity and questioning whether random events in your life were actually caused by the hand of an unseen angel actually puts the focus in the wrong place and it takes glory away from God rather than giving it to him. If something is amazing that occurs, you should give glory to God, whether he's working in it directly or he's working through angelic activity. They are to receive none of the glory, and it all goes to God himself. Here's a third application. Be encouraged. God is powerful, and he is working in ways far beyond your comprehension. This unnamed servant in Genesis chapter 24 was bolstered in his heart because he knew that God was with him and that God was working before him. And his mission was being carried out by God and his army, by his heavenly hosts, and that he was not alone. So listen, God, God doesn't need you to fulfill his purposes, and he doesn't need me. God could reach every lost person in the world right now without any of us, and without ever even saying a word. He could simply regenerate their hearts. Yet, God has chosen to allow us to enter into his ultimate mission because he loves us so much that he wants us to join in with him. Likewise, God does not need the angels to do anything, but he has chosen to create them for his own purposes. And God receives the glory because he has created a great heavenly host that is far beyond what we can even imagine, yet they are simple and they are pathetic and in comparison to Jesus Christ and to God's glory. So be encouraged that God is ruling and he is reigning in power and in majesty, even right now. That's what was being said to this servant. Be encouraged. God is with you. And we too should be encouraged, which brings us now to our fourth application from this point, that we should delight that we have something far superior to angels. If you are a Christian, then wherever you go, you have God himself, the Holy Spirit, with you. Who needs an angel to go before us when we have God himself dwelling in us? 
So why would we ever search for angelic activity when we can simply say, the Spirit of God is with me, I have all reason to rejoice, and I can go forth in boldness to pursue the commands that God has told me to obey, and I will do so in His strength and in His power because He is with me. So now we come to the second point, the second way that God works out His purposes in this passage, and it is through prayer. Now, in verses 12 through 14, we see the servant of Abraham Pray this prayer. He says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now, there are a lot of amazing things that we can see in this prayer. The man, this man, think about it, was not a descendant of Abraham, yet he believed in God. This man was by no means Jewish in any way, but he believed and trusted in God and prayed to God, and God answered him. And he prayed based upon the fact that he knew God would show steadfast love to Abraham, praying based upon the covenant. Now, that phrase, steadfast love, is always used in the book of Genesis, this particular Hebrew rendering, and is almost always used in the Torah, speaking specifically about God's covenant love towards his people. And God tells, and he tells God his plan. I'm just going to ask for a sip of water. I just want a little drink. All I want is to ask for one dip of water. And please have the girl offer to water all of my camels as well. Now, let's just pause for a moment. This guy has ten camels. He is taken with him. Camels are the embodiment of arrogance in the animal kingdom. They are the worst. They are they have this smug face that they always wear that when they look at you. And if you get close enough to them, you're almost guaranteed that they are going to spit on you. They are disgusting. Not to mention that a thirsty camel drinks more than 25 gallons of water when it stops to drink at an oasis to refill its fat deposits. It is amazing how much water they are able to consume. And wells in those days did not often have the kind of rope and pulley system that we have. In fact, we know for sure this one didn't, by the way it's described later in the text. So if you wanted water, you would have to go down the steps on the outer part of the well, and you would walk down to the water, and you would fill up your jar, and you would carry it back to the surface. Also, think about the fact that water is not light. Water is very heavy. In fact, one gallon in in, of water in um, our modern kind of measuring system, a gallon is 8.34 pounds. They are not light. And most water jugs that women would carry in those days carried about three gallons, which is a little more than 25 pounds. So think about this for a moment. This servant has 10 camels. So if you do the math with these basic numbers, the girl would be, he would be saying, I just want to sip. And then she would have to go down and fill up her water jar 83 times to feed all of his camels so that they might all be watered. And the likelihood of somebody volunteering for that kind of service is so unlikely that the servant knew that if somebody says they would do that for me, I know that must be a sign from God. But here's what I want you to notice. In verse 15, before he had even finished speaking, it says this, before he had finished speaking or praying, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. When did this happen? When did God answer the prayer? 
She was literally already approaching. She had surely left her house long before he had even arrived at this well. She had walked there probably from a good distance. We know that she had run a long distance later to get there. So as she is running and arriving, I want to know how is it that God was actually working in this prayer? Was it just a coincidence? Absolutely not. And the servant doesn't ever take it as such. He never assumes this to be a coincidence. Rather, he asks her for a sip of water and Rebecca does exactly what he prayed for and she watered the camels. But that leaves us with the question, was the servant's prayer unnecessary? Was his prayer for her to arrive unnecessary? Would God have worked this out without his prayer? He had already sent Rebecca to the well. She was already right there in front of him. Now, the nature of prayer is often misunderstood by Christians. Some think that God is like an eager worker who's kind of like on a leash, that he's capable of doing anything that we need, but he can't do it unless we just pray that he'll do it. But that view of God completely undermines his omnipotence. It makes us Aladdin and it makes him the genie. But there is a false view of, uh, of, of prayer that I think is just as evil and wicked and I think is much more subtle. And I honestly think it's probably much more common here in our congregation. And it's this, that we have this dangerous idea that God is going to do whatever he wants to do. So why bother even praying about it? God's going to do however he likes to fulfill his purposes. He's going to do them. So why do we even bother praying? Now, to be clear, I don't think that anyone here would ever say these words out loud. And I assume that most of them of us would never even think these thoughts consciously. But subconsciously, I think that we often do. A prayerless life can only be explained by our thinking that God is either too weak or too unwilling to work in our circumstances. Or it can be explained by the fact that we have just fatalistically said, well, it doesn't matter what I do at all. God doesn't care if I pray. He will work out his own purposes. So what we're seeing happening in Genesis 24 is God working through his servant's prayer. He did not need permission. He had been working this together before the prayer had even began. He had been working this together before time had even begun. Yet the servant was blessed because God answered his prayer and showed his faithfulness to him. He allowed the servant to see, yes, I am working. Yes, I am answering your prayers. And our prayers work just like this. We pray trusting that God is going to answer them in a, in a way that reveals his goodness to us. He's always going to show faithfulness to his children. Now, sometimes he does this by saying no to us, but he always works through the prayers of his people. Now, notice the response of the servant that we see when he tells his own story down in verse 48. He says, Then I bowed my head and I worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way. That's the response that our heart has when we see God answering prayer. When we recognize that our prayers are actually part of God's sovereign action in the world, we are amazed and humbled and we fall down and we pray, thank you, God, that you have blessed me and allowed me to see what you are doing in the world. So if you're feeling convicted right now and you desire to put more emphasis of prayer in your life, you can begin very simply by sticking around after church today for our stay and pray. It's a really important way that our body grows together in learning the needs that we each have and serving one another as we pray for one another, as we have covenanted to do for one another. And I encourage you, don't let that fall by the wayside. Begin developing prayer today in a more significant way in your own life. So we've seen that God carries out his purpose through angelic activity. We see that God carries out his purposes through prayer. 
But what about us? Does that mean that we should just sit back and do nothing as we passively observe God working in the world and praying? Well, you should know the answer to that question is a resounding no. God calls us to his to serve him with our efforts for his glory. Now, as feeble as we are, it's important to understand that God actually delights in working through us. Martin Luther is credited with the saying, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And in this passage, we see God using the bartering and bargaining skills of this this unnamed servant, this guy we don't even know almost anything about him, but we see his skillful, crafty use of words to convince the family to let Rebecca go. This past week, I learned a ton of information about ancient trading and bargaining and rituals and how this servant was so masterful at his craft. And I'm not going to go into all the details, but I'll simply highlight a couple of ways here of how he sought to convince Rebecca's father and mainly her brother, Laban, who seemed to be calling the shots in this homestead. In verse 22, we read, When the camels had finished drinking, the man, which is the servant, took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arm weighing ten gold shekels. And now by giving her such a gift, without even knowing who she was, he has not yet asked her, who are your family, who are your parents? He hasn't even met her, doesn't know her name, knows nothing about her family. He gives her this so that he is revealing just a taste of the wealth that Abraham had gained. This would certainly pique the interest of anyone. Now, then when he was taken to Rebecca's mother's house for a meal, we read these words in verse 33. It says, then the food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat it until I have said what I have to say. And then he speaking, it's probably Laban here says, speak on. Now, these people would have thought that we are barbarians. They would have looked at us and think about our eating practices and think that we are absolutely absurd. We walk into a restaurant and we don't care who is eating around us. But in the Bible, you eat with people for a reason. And this meal is always significant. And by refusing to eat with them, the servant is essentially declaring to them, I don't know if you're my friends. I don't know if you're my enemies. So I'm not going to touch this food until I have the opportunity to tell you my story. And then he retells the entire story of how he came to be there. And he closes his story with these words in verse 49. He says, Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, Abraham, tell me. And if not, tell me that I might turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, what it means when he says turn to the right hand or to the left, it means that he would get up right then and he was going to go. And in doing so, he would be declaring there is now a division between your household and the household of Abraham. Now, remember, Abraham has already shown himself to have a lot of wealth, and that would be a big problem if they would ever need something from him. Remember, in these days, households were like clans. They would collect servants and lots of different people with him. When, when Abraham went out to war, he took a, a ton of people, hundreds of people from his own household. This means that he has got almost a little kingdom for himself right there. And by saying, if I'm going to turn to the right hand or the left, he's saying, you're creating a pretty powerful enemy. You don't want to do this. So it's an old fashioned bargaining tactic. And it seems like he gets the answer that he wants in verses 50 and 51. It says, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the son has spoken, as the Lord has spoken. But then, when the servant asks to leave, 
We see they have a little bit of a change of heart. And we see Laban and Rebekah's mother have different ideas. In verse 55, it says, Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that, she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. And they said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. Basically, now they're giving her an opportunity to say, are you going to go or are you just going to stay here? And if she stayed 10 days, the likelihood is that she wouldn't end up going at all. And they called Rebecca to her and said, will you go with the man? And she said, I will go. Now, interestingly, Rebecca seems to have given the same, been given the same call that Abraham had received earlier in the book of Genesis. When God tells him, I want you to go, I want you to leave your land. I want you to leave your kindred and your family, and I want you to go to the place that I will show you. Now Rebecca is given the same opportunity, and her response is, I will go, just like Abraham. Now God worked through the servant's effort and through Rebecca's decision, and it is a dangerous thing for us to develop a fatalistic worldview which says, God's going to do whatever he wants, whether I attempt to serve him through obedience or not. So why even bother? God's going to do whatever he wants, you're right. And God is going to perform his wondrous deeds and fulfill his covenants. And he is going to do everything to fulfill his purposes. But he also delights in using simple, ordinary works done by obedient and faithful Christians to do it. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your help in evangelizing. That's why it's so amazing in 2 Corinthians 5.20 when it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Can you imagine that God would use somebody like me to stand in a pulpit right now and tell you stuff? That is ridiculous that God has allowed me to be a preacher. I, I wake up in the morning sometimes and think, what was God thinking? How could he use someone as like me to do this right now for you? And the answer is because God delights in using frail and pathetic and feeble people to perform his work for his glory so that we recognize and realize it's not about me. I get none of the glory. It all goes directly to him. And you can literally put anything that God would desire to do into this equation, and you will find that he doesn't need us. He uses us. And in doing so, God receives all the glory because he loves making trophies of his grace. He is using a crooked stick to make a straight line. And the reason that it is possible is because God has already done the greatest work in the history of the world. He has sent Jesus to the cross to die for sinners like you and me. That is a kind of activity that you and I could not take part in. And by dying for our sins, Jesus purchased a people for himself. And we as his people and the sheep of his pasture have now received the freedom to obey him and to honor him. And he has brought us into a covenant that is even better than the covenant that he made with Abraham. He has brought us into the new and better covenant. And this covenant that we have been promised is that our efforts, everything that we ever do, it's all going to be meaningful. Everything that we ever do for the Lord is meaningful because he has already accomplished his work. And he has already redeemed his people. And in time, all his sheep will come to him. But it means that every activity that we are doing for his sake and for his kingdom will work out for his glory. Second John chapter 1, verse 6 explains it this way, and I think so beautifully. It says, And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. And you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. 
Now, love for God in this verse is presented for us in two ways. That we walk in obedience to God's commands and that we walk in love towards one another. Now, it is not coincidental that this parallels the first and second great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Nothing you do is meaningless because all the things that you do should fall into those two categories. Every action of your life is being woven together into the great tapestry of God's grand narrative and I desire that my part in that narrative would be dominated by ways that God has used me beyond what I could ever even imagine. That he would use my simple and ordinary consistent obedience to bring him glory in ways beyond what I can even see in this lifetime. And I hope that's true for you as well. What do you desire God to do through you in this life? Are you content just going day to day, living haphazardly in the word of God, not not really taking your time to focus on who he is or what he's done for you, and occasionally coming back to a point of repentance, but just kind of falling in and out and in and out of a strong walk with the Lord, Are you content to walk in that way? Or are you desirous that God is going to use even you, even me, even people that have very limited gifts and skills, even people that we can say, I'm not great in the eyes of the world, but God can use those who are weak in the world to shame the wise. Are you desirous that he would do that? That God would utilize you and all of your gifts for his glory. And I pray that God would use you and that you would throw yourself into that mission full force and that you would seek to honor him with all that you do, knowing that nothing you do is meaningless. So now let's move to the last way that we're going to highlight from this text about how God works out his providence in real time. Namely, that God uses people's sin to produce his perfect outcome. Now, I'd like to take a closer look at this man, Laban. We've been introduced to him here. When we were first introduced, we read these words. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, his, that's how it starts. The first thing we see about him, his eyes, they betray him. He is filled with a desire for wealth. Consider that as of last night, the price of gold was $1,303 an ounce. An ounce. But compared to the ancient world, gold is very easy to get right now. Mining in the time of Abraham was incredibly primitive. It's difficult to dig a deep mine when you don't have iron, which they did not have during his lifetime. And when you only have the source of light, which is fire, and you take that fire into a hole and it burns up your oxygen, it's difficult to make a very deep hole. So it makes getting precious metals out of the ground very, very challenging. But Laban is desirous to make a deal with Abraham and Abraham's servant because he desires to be wealthy. And we see this greed here in this passage, and it will only be more clear as we go on throughout the book. And what we will continue to see throughout the summer is that Laban really wanted the blessings of God without having God. So in in verse 53, we see that Laban got a taste of what he wanted. It says, And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. Ooh, I got something out of this deal already. So not only does he not make an enemy with Abraham, but he is desirous now in receiving a portion of the goods that he wants to receive. And it's probable that the reason Laban wanted the servant to stay longer is so that he could schmooze even more stuff out of him. But when Rebekah chose to leave, Laban and his family blessed her with this phrase. Our sister, 
May you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Now, this is incredibly ironic here because Laban is actually cursing himself by blessing her. Do you see that? For Rebekah's offspring, Jacob would eventually possess the gate of Laban for a time when he has come to hate him. Now, I want to give you the greatest example of how God works through sin. I want you to see that God is working through the greed of Laban. He's working through his greed to get Rebekah to Isaac. And God is not limited to working through the good actions of people. Because if God was limited to working through just the good actions of people to perform his plans, he would never get anything done. But God is able to work even through our sin for his purposes. And I want you to see the clearest, most powerful example of this in all of the Bible. In Peter's famous sermon in Acts chapter 2, we see this incredible statement in verses 22 and 23. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of of lawless men. Notice that the cross was the definite, unchangeable, fixed, certain plan of God. There was no way this would ever shift or change. It was going to happen. And it was done as part of God's perfect and absolute foreknowledge. Yet the greatest sin in history was carried out by the hands of lawless men. Who carried it out? Was it God? Absolutely, it was part of God's plan. But who carried it out? The hands of lawless or sinful men. And this sermon makes clear that they were guilty for their sins. Peter is not saying God had planned this and you know you were part of the whole activity that happened here. But you know what? Since it was part of God's plan, it was all his work and therefore you're not really responsible. No, God is sovereign and you are responsible for your actions. And notice that the cross, this definite, unchangeable, fixed, certain plan is what God was carrying out through them. Their sin was even part of the plan. But notice that God was weaving together the injustice of Pilate and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the hunger and, and power for a hunger for power of the chief priests and the bloodthirst of the Roman soldiers. He was using all of that to carry out the most significant event in history for our good and for his glory. Now, I'm going to allow Peter to explain to you the implications of this truth found at the end of his own sermon in Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 38, it says this, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, Save yourselves from this crooked crooked generation. Now if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I want you to understand something very important right now. That I'm going to call on you in the same manner that Peter is doing here in, in uh, Acts chapter 2. That I'm going to call on you and tell you that if you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation, you will be saved. Because just as you have continued on your entire life in rebellion and sin against God, you are part of God's plan. But I want you to know this. Here, as it says, that there is a people that God has called to himself. 
And if you are feeling now the conviction of your sin and will turn and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will be with him forever. And you will no longer be responsible for those sins because they have been paid for by Jesus Christ himself on the cross. And I want you to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Peter is commending them to do here, and you will be saved. So to close, I want to give glory to God who works all things together for his glory and for our good. And today I encourage you, continue looking as you see the Bible, as you see narratives like this one, to watch how God is actually working out his purposes. See his hand in operation. And in doing so, Let's give him all the honor and glory and praise. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I pray that today that all that we have seen of you would cause us to be in awe of you. The fact that you work in spiritual dimensions beyond what we can see through angelic activity. God, I pray that you would help us to be encouraged and uplifted by the fact that you are great and powerful. So mighty indeed that you have an entire army of the hosts of heaven that work on behalf of those who will be saved. God, I pray for those of us Uh, who are here, who are saved, Lord, that we would be encouraged by the fact that you work through our prayers and that you work through our feeble efforts and attempts to honor you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God, I pray that you would please also help us to rejoice in the fact that you have redeemed us from our sins. And God, I pray that if there is anyone here today who has not yet been redeemed, that you would work in their heart, that you would cause them to see Christ clearly and his beauty and that they might be saved. And God, for all of the things that we'll be discovering this summer from the book of Genesis, I pray that it would be a rich meal that you would provide for us, that you would give us great delight in your word, and that we would never walk from it and say, oh, that was a nice story. But instead, we would be deeply impacted by your grace and your power and your attributes and your character. And most of all, God, I pray that we would be encouraged by the fact that all of this is declaring to us that your plan was ultimately to send your son to die on behalf of people like us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.